everyone. Another installment of Cavs Corner Conversations. I am Brad Franklin, publisher of CavsCorner.com. This is a little bit of a different one, um, um, a little bit of a, um, a special one, if you will. Um, this is a conversation that we had with Chris Long as part of our 400th episode um, several weeks back. I, I thought maybe given, you know, it's a 50-minute conversation, um, given sort of the topics that we covered, I thought it might be a cool thing to break it out of the show, put it in its own thing here in the conversations feed. So, Folks, if they haven't had a chance to listen to it as part of episode 400, they get a chance to listen to Chris uh, now. Obviously, we recorded this at the time when Virginia basketball, there was some uncertainty around sort of where things were. But ultimately, I think it's a really great um, you know, insight into who Chris is and some of the ways he, he thinks about not only his time at UVA, but his time since then. Um, so without further ado, here's Chris Long. The man himself... Number 91. It, I, I, Chris, I'm going to have to ask you at some point what it's like to walk into a building when half of the wall of the building is your face. Um, but Chris Long has joined the, the podcast in celebration of our 400th episode. Chris, how are you, my friend? I'm doing great, Brad. How are you? <sighs> well, I, full disclosure to the folks out there listening, as they hear this a week after, we don't know what's happened with Virginia basketball. We don't um, know how we're doing. <laughs> yeah, we don't know how we're doing, Chris. Um, Ask me in a week how I'm doing. We'll see. <laughs> right? be, like, listen, if we if we don't get to go to Indy, that's going to be a huge, huge bummer. Uh, I know. But it is Friday afternoon as we record uh, this interview. Um, we, at this point, know Virginia's not going to play in the semifinals in, in Greensboro. The Cavaliers are uh, presumably already home by now. Um, still don't know about Indy. Still don't know about um, what's going on from this point forward. But we're going to try to give folks something else maybe to, 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 to sink their teeth into next week um, or I guess as they listen to it this week. Time is weird. Um, but Chris, <laughs> I want to start I want to start here, man. Um, so Rivals is a, you know, obviously recruiting is a, is a big thing that we do. And it, as I was kind of preparing for this, I became – kind of aware of the fact that I actually don't know much about how your recruitment sort of went. If, you know, if it was UVA foregone conclusion, you know, from the jump or what. And so I want to take you back to, um, to high school days. Was, was the pull to go to UVA, was that as real right from the start or did that sort of develop over time? Take me through sort of how, you know, your recruitment went and, and what went into your decision to go to UVA. Well, I did commit early. I committed junior year. So, you know, I took my first offer. Um, so it wasn't a long process officially, but, you know, looking back, it was far from a foregone conclusion that I was going to end up playing at Virginia. I mean, definitely something that I wanted to do. Um, you know, definitely a hometown kid that, you know, grew up going to U-Haul to watch basketball in Scott Stadium and all those landmark victories and whatnot. I was up there running around raising hell on the hill. And, you know, so for me, it was, it was always in the back of my mind, but initially in 10th grade, when I started getting recruited, I didn't think I was that good. Um, and quite frankly, uh, you know, it didn't help that I was at a private school because people would tell me, you know, like, you're not that good. You're just at a small school, that, that sort of thing. And I have right. a dad who happens to be very realistic. And uh, he would tell me, hey, man, you got to work on your guard sets. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if you you have like the, the athleticism it takes to play <laughs> defensive end in college. But he, he to this day, he claims he didn't say it like that. He was just saying, like, you know, hedge your bets a little bit. Let's work on your right. guard sets, whatnot. Right. I can remember the first day I went down to that shell station down below Stab on Ivy Road and uh, opened my letter after school. It was my first letter. It was from Cal. And uh, I just was blown away. 
and it wasn't anything special. It was just the generic typed out letter. Like, right. Hey, we know you exist. <laughs> right. Um, and a signature. And, uh, and I saved that for a while. And, uh, you know, I looked at Ivy League schools a little bit, but my grades probably weren't going to be good enough. I looked around the ACC a little bit. Honestly, the the two teams in the ACC that I I took trips to was UNC and Virginia Tech. Right. And I didn't like the hokey stone at Virginia Tech. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the I thought the buildings were ugly. <laughs> kind of looks like Shawshank. It, it looks like it bit. looks like a prison. Um, As if UVA no, fans had a reason to love you more, Chris. <laughs> well, I went on one of those guys' podcasts before the the Commonwealth Cup. Oh, that's Cup right, that's right. You did. Yeah, it yeah, caused all kinds I, of ruckus. Yeah, and I just I was talking about the Hokie Stone, and you know, like I complimented Blacksburg enough as a, as a beautifully set place, but um, yeah, I wasn't a fan of the Hokie Stone. Then when I went to, to UNC, that was honestly where I really had serious aspirations of going. But when I went there for my unofficial visit, I didn't get the idea that they were as crazy about me going there. Um, mm. And there was just kind of one little interaction that I was like, eh, maybe not the place for me. So um, who was went the home. coach then? Yeah, well, who was the coach? It it wasn't his it was probably not his fault, but you know, I watched these two coaches like I was waiting, I was being ushered back there to meet meet a coach or something, and and uh somebody said to the coach hey this is chris long you know blah 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 and the guy was like yeah i gotta go do this thing right now like whatever and the guy <laughs> was like it's the guy was like it's howie's son and the guy's like oh okay so then he comes over and talks to me uh-huh. and and my thing was like i just didn't get the idea in that interaction that they were that interested in me the player right. um and that and that was probably unfair <laughs> well i don't know man like i would imagine as you went through Heck, all of the time that you play football, the fact that your dad played football, who your dad was, that was never that was never not a part of your own story, right? Your own experience, right? Like that had to have been on some level part of it for you. It was always part of it. It was always part of it for me. Um, you know, it was just a reality growing up. Uh, your aspiration is to do something at the highest level. That's the expectation people are going to put on you. And right. it happens to be in the field that, you know, your dad um, – existed in and excelled in and actually was one of the best of all time to do what he did right. yeah and so that yeah that, it, wasn't, that, it wasn't like your dad just played the game right he's in camp right you know I mean? like <laughs> yeah which you know and i've i've had buddies who who's de- who played in the pros and whose dads played the game at a high level and um you know but it, it's just it's not quite the same you know my dad's a very visible person um right. right and was great and when your dad's a hall of famer no matter what you do people always question you know, one, the legitimacy of you being in a space that you've earned being in, but also two, the impressiveness of your accomplishments. And right. for me, the latter never bothered me. I don't care if anybody thinks my accomplishments are that impressive. I feel pretty good about what I've been able to accomplish humbly. The first thing always bothered me, you know, right. and that was people doubting you and questioning mm-hmm. you um, as if you didn't get there on your own merits. Because I could honestly say I outworked everybody in the building. Right. Yeah, I mean, and, and I can imagine too. Like I, I, talking to enough recruits as I have over the years, like you want to you want to go to a school where you feel like they're interested and invested in you as a as not only a, a player but also a person. And so, to ju- whether that thing is who your who your family was or you know how big you are, whatever that thing might be, you know, you want to be more than just you know this other thing. 
You know what I'm saying? Like, and like you want to you want to get that vibe. So when yeah, you, and that's and that's what I got. That's what I got from Al Grow. And that you know, it wasn't. I didn't think Al Grow was a BS guy. Um, and I was impressed by the you know the Super Bowl trophy on his desk. I was impressed by you know his NFL background. But more than anything, I just he reminded me of somebody who was just no BS. Right. And um, he wasn't trying to oversell something. And so I'm not much of a courting guy, you know, like I didn't, I haven't spent a lot of time in my career as a free agent. Right. Um, I haven't spent a lot of time getting recruited, you know, like I committed, I took my first offer. Um, I'm just not one that likes to song and dance of that. Um, right. And so Al Groh kind of was all business and, and I like that about him. And lo and behold, it turned out to be a great decision as far as like connecting with a coach who, who invests in you, the person, and I would have never, but you talk about a guy who comes back into town every year now uh -huh. and hosts 20 guys at 30 Nellies or yep. wherever and holds court and sits around and remembers everybody and calls everybody and makes sure it's organized. And John Copper, shout out to John Copper to get that stuff done. Um, but like, Al Gro cares about his players as people. And so that's why I was very lucky to meet him. And here he is 15, 20 years later for some guys still checking in on them. You would not believe the amount of people that I still talk to that are like, Hey, coach Gro hit me up the other day. Did you hear about this? You know, he was checking out how I was doing that sort of thing. That means a lot. And that's mm -hmm. rare in college football. Yeah, for sure. And I think, um, I, I think this is, this is going to be maybe a hot take, but I feel like Al for a lot of fans got a bad rap just because that disconnect between, you know, what really happens and sort of the, the way that fans sort of internalize what they think happened. You know what I mean? Mm, and I yeah. can, and, and from talking to biscuit and talking to various other guys, Elton Brown over the years, like I've always gotten the sense that Al was the kind of coach that every player wanted to play for. Yeah. Even if he maybe wasn't necessarily the kind of coach that gave all the fans the warm fuzzies. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of, you know, a perception of a fan base is molded by press conferences or, you know, stuff like that. Right, I mean, right. it, that Bill Belichick would never survive if he wasn't such a great coach because people would take any opportunity they could to you know, to run him out of there because he's not warm and fuzzy or not even like in a conventional football sense, warm and right. fuzzy. And, and he wasn't a rah-rah guy either. He wasn't, not a wasn't rah, Mike rah London, guy. right? Like Mike would get up there. I mean, Mike, you, you, you just, you wanted to listen to Mike talk forever, you know, like yeah. Mike was just a really good dude and he was really personable. Al, like you said, was a more of a business oriented, like handle your stuff kind of guy. Yeah. And guys respected that. And guys, you know, like at first you're like, man, this guy's a hard ass. I mean, he worked us to the bone and, uh, but he we put a bunch of guys in the that. league. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, we yeah, got a bunch true. of guys in the league. We had a yeah. bunch of guys in the league. We we were always the biggest, most physical, strongest team. Um, we could have been better at, in skill position, um, you know, areas at times. But, you know, I think Al did a really good job. And, and if anything, you know, he might have rubbed some of the Virginia culture a little bit wrong, like the Virginia um, – like the school wrong a little yeah, bit because yeah. he was so all about football. He was about the academics as well. I mean, like he, he's a Virginia guy through and through and he takes pride in that and in recruiting guys that are smart, tough and focused. That was the whole thing. So smart was the first thing, but he wasn't ever going to play the political games. You know, he was never going to, you're going to have a meeting with him, I'm sure. And if you worked at the school and you didn't like what you heard, you, 
you probably didn't like the tone of the meeting either because he wasn't going to just like he wasn't going to package things to sound all rosy. I mean, right. he was just yeah. a great shooter. And that can part of being a coach is working with, you know, um, the school as well. And 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 that's tough, like uh, at Virginia, because it is a very serious academic institution. Right. And I think Bronco actually is kind of like Al in that way, too, where he just is. He's like, this is these are the facts and this is where we are. And I think he kind of gets he's gotten a little bit more runway just because they had all those losing seasons. And it's like we need someone to come in and sort of be the CEO. And, you know, he's getting kind of listened to, I guess. Yeah. And those guys work hard. They work very hard. It reminds me of Al's program in a sense and the workload. Like if you go over there for a day and see how committed these guys are, um, you know, it's a testament to the culture that Broncos trying to install or instill and got in the team and and install work ethic in um, 18 year old kids who I can guarantee you, for the most part, have not worked like they have to work when they walk on campus in Charlottesville in the classroom <laughs> or on the football field. So, you know, that process, like I was talking about with Al Grow, there is a process where for a year and a half, you're like, is this guy nuts? Does he not like me? You know, like, is this not the right place for me? Like, and I've told this story before. I almost transferred. Um, I almost transferred after my freshman year to, I thought about Ohio State. I thought about Cal. Um, you know, and I really seriously committed. I might have done it if I wasn't so scared, you know, Interesting. of making the change and being disloyal. Um but there were a few crossroads like that. Like Bill Musgrave was my, the guy who recruited me, um, and he left. So I felt weird for a little bit there. That dude there is coached on like half the NFL teams now. Yes, he has. But then there, there was the period after freshman year where, and most of this was scheme related, like we were running a 3-4. And I don't think I really understood what that entailed when I committed. And, uh, and it was hard for me. And it was hard being, you know, my dad's son, four-star recruit, uh Gatorade State player of the year and being expected to do these big splash splashy pass rusher numbers and we're not really running the scheme for that and so I just at times was frustrated um but I soul searched a little bit and I remember there was a teammate of mine who will go unnamed who was thinking about doing the same thing after freshman year and we drove up to Afton Mountain you know that old abandoned parking lot up there with the the hotel that just sits up on top of the hill on top of yeah i always just assume that place was haunted (laughs) well (laughs) it probably is but me and redacted went up there and sat for like three hours until we figured it out and when when we left the parking lot we said we're not leaving we're in this thing for life and um and so we were huh you and redacted up there on, on in the in the haunted mansion, just just hammering in it the out. parking lot. <laughs> in the, yeah, in the parking lot of the uh, with Scooby Doo and, and and company running around. It was daytime, when, luckily. <laughs> yeah, but in in a situation like that, like, did you talk to you know your folks? Did you talk to anybody on the team? Otherwise, just you and redacted, just kind of hammering it out. Well, some of you, you talk to your your parents, obviously, and they always want to folk. They they always want to support you, no matter what. You know. Um, and certainly having a dad who understands like the trials of football, I'm sure he understood where I was coming from, from a scheme perspective, but also, you know, um, the grass is not always greener on the other side. And that's something that people need to hear too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's like one of the biggest lessons in life, I think. And 
you know, mm-hmm. through that process, we just kind of, I made some pros and cons and the pros outweighed the cons and, and more than anything, it means something to me to play college football in my hometown. And so, you know, that was part of the reason I was, uh, I was so adamant about playing at Virginia. Once I got the offer was also the reason I stayed. Right. Do you think that maybe figuring that piece out in college is, is part of maybe what helped you in terms of whether it was moving from one team to the other, whether it was kind of not going through the whole free agency thing. I mean, you, you always seem to make very, you know, quick and reasonable, you know what I mean? You didn't seem particularly impacted, at least from the outside looking in. I mean, obviously you can tell us how you really felt in it, but you never seemed to make the emotional decision, right? You didn't need the the team to kiss your butt. You know, you, you kind of looked at it and said, you know what, it's best in my best interest to move, to move on to, to another opportunity. And you seem to be no frills about it. Do you think that for that the helped most you? Part, for, for the most part, I did that. I tried to make decisions that were rooted in in logic and rooted in loyalty and rooted in personal pride, um, right. you know, for the, the kind of teammate I was or um, the kind of dude I was. And, you know, and when I was in St. Louis, you know, first eight years of my career, I didn't hit free agency because after I had that 13-sack year, um they paid me, you know, they, they, uh, they read me up a year early. So I never hit the market and yeah, do I wish I'd have hit the market? Yeah, I do. Um, Mm -hmm. I'd wish, you know, maybe I'd have had more confidence that the sky wasn't going to fall. Like, but during my contract season, when I, I was playing through a high ankle sprain, so I was shooting my ankle up every week. I was like, well, if I don't sign this deal now, I take right. a chance on next year. Like, look what you're going through right now. It's a miracle you're able to do double digits like this. So, you know, didn't hit free agency in St. Louis. And then for the first time at 31 years old, I'm looking up and I'm definitely past my prime and I'm on the back end. I'm looking at trying to win. And so New England was just a really calculated, like handicapping, like who's going to give me the best chance to win a championship right. decision. And then I made a selfish kind of like ego decision to go play in Philly and leave New England because I wanted to prove that I wasn't washed up and I had to play in a system that was um, conducive to me doing that. And so that's that's why I went to Philly. The only emotional decision I ever made, which, you know, sometimes I could go either way on was retiring. Hmm. Um, You know, I. I was kind of fed up with some things and Mm -hmm. uh, I just said, I said enough is enough. And part of it was like, if I was fed up with my situation in Philly, you know, I'm not talking about the city or my teammates or anything like that, but I mean, it's been kind of documented that it wasn't the reason I stopped playing was because of, I I didn't like the situation I was in on that team. Like, I also made the emotional, like overly loyal decision to not try to force my way out and play somewhere else. Right. And just decided, Hey, like I'm irritated with this whole thing. I just want to be done with it. And I kind of, I don't want to say made a rash decision, but I feel like if you're going to ever retire before they force you out, there is going to be some emotion involved. You have to like seize that moment where you had the realization that you're willing to do it. That's the only time I've ever been emotional about, you know, making a decision otherwise i try to do it the way you describe yeah with um in terms of when you were at uva um you know i think for a lot of a lot of fans you were um you were a guy who was the heart and soul right you you were that's the the way you were viewed i think from the outside looking in is you know you were the one with the energy you were the one with that a lot of folks seem to rally around you know i don't know if that 
was something that resonated with you at the time or if it is something that, you know, in your post sort of football life has really resonated with you. But how does how does it feel to be from a place to play for a school that's, you know, home and then to have the, that vibe with the fans, to, you know, to for them to to show you that sort of love and to have that sort of view of you? Does did that ever how long did it take before that really sunk in? I mean, it sunk in relatively quick that there was going to be a little bit more of a microscope on me because I was a hometown guy. But um, I think as much as it means so much to me to have for my hometown to be proud of me or to say, like, you know, this guy played good ball at Virginia and then he went to the pros and he played good ball and he, you know, he's right. a guy that played the game the right way, busts his ass. We can be proud to say he's one of us. But I think more than that is like, you know, your teammates and the thing you mentioned off the top is like, if you're a guy that people gravitate to, you have to earn that. Um, you know, there are guys that people think are cool in the locker room and they're going to gravitate to those guys. But for you to be a leader, you have to put in the sweat equity and you have to work and you have to be magnetic and you don't try to go out and think about being a leader because that's just not how it works. Um, I really do believe the reason that team was so close and, you know, I'm deflecting a little bit here. There were a lot of leaders on that team. And that was a magical year. I mean, mm -hmm. there was a lot of close ball games. You I mean, guys got a lot calves. of bounces, man. Yeah, yeah we, we found ways to win. And, and that was a really tight team. Of all the teams I've been on in football, that might be one of them, um, the tightest. And what you have to have is guys that just love each other. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the biggest thing is nobody could – if there's one thing I hope people would remember is that I, I love my teammates, you know? Um, and I think if you love your teammates and you're, and you get it done on the field and you put the work in, cause I know they respected the way I work, then you're going to get that in return. And so mm -hmm. I, th I think that's one of the biggest things, like how connected are you with your teammates? There are leaders that are not so connected with their teammates, but those guys have to be incredibly skilled at football. And most people aren't good enough to be a leader just off of performance, you have to be able to connect with your teammates. And and ultimately, the best way to do that is to legitimately care about them. Yeah. And we cared about each other a great deal that year. It's interesting too, like that seems to be a theme, doesn't matter what sport, doesn't matter what level, you know, it's, a, it's all about that humanity piece, right? And that, you know, we all, we get focused on, you know, oh, you know, how many sacks does so-and-so have or how many touchdowns does so-and-so have. And what I always find interesting is that you, you talk to players and they, they remember a lot of one, they, a lot of times they don't remember the games they won. They, they focus on the ones, you know, the ones that got away from them, the ones they lost, mm -hmm. but it's always about the people. Like I could have a, you know, a, a, a run sheet here of like things I want to talk to you about. And we could, I could ask you like, what's your favorite college memory? Is it playing that mm -hmm. dude at Maryland in the, in the turf? You know, probably. <laughs> yeah. oh, Chris he, might, yeah. he might still be there. <laughs> he might still be there. He's I, growing. I wanted to check on him because it was nothing <laughs> personal, but yeah. uh, yeah. I hate that was, I, I like, I think I like legit laughed when that happened. Cause it was just like, Oh, like he's off the ground. Here's like, the yeah. problem with that. I hit him hard. Sure. But it was actually the guard's fault because I beat the tackle and I was getting slide pro. And a lot of times, like out of that frog stance in a three, four, the best you can do is bait out. Like as if anybody's really should be worried about me in that sumo stance, getting the edge, uh -huh. the tackle's going to widen with you. Then you beat him inside and be ready to immediately swim the guard. I had a sack against NC State that way. 
It's one of the smoothest rushes of my career. <laughs> but this is what happened. So I beat the tackle inside. And then I've got the guard under my armpit. And you can get away with swim moves in college. Like that was one thing right. that just doesn't happen the same way in the pros. But this dude pushed me, not in the side, like not to widen me. He pushed me in the back. Yeah, he like propelled you towards little, the quarterback. <laughs> he gave me a little nudge right into Chris Turner's chin. And uh, yeah, you could feel that one. And I hate Maryland, so that felt really good. I know you didn't ask me about a best memory, but that might be one of them yeah. for sure. Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna ask, like, do you miss? I mean, obviously you're not playing for UV anymore, but do you kind of miss that rivalry? Like now that it's gone. Oh man, um, Chris, don't say you don't want to bring it back because then I got to go to College Park, and nah. I don't want to go to College Park, bro. Yeah, now I they're enjoy. getting in beefs with Michigan <laughs> yeah, basketball, it's and it's like a whole thing. I. Uh, I, you know what? I enjoyed making fun of my Maryland friends and telling them that they had to leave, which not necessarily <laughs> true. I know they have a good athletic program, but uh, it's fun to say. Uh, now, if they were back, I wouldn't mind beating them a couple times a year in multiple sports. So, yeah. Yeah, now yeah. it's like you can just be like, enjoy playing Nebraska or whatever because, you know, yeah, you right. know they don't want to do that either. They, so. don't, yeah, they don't want to. They're just so hateable that like Big Ten will figure that out soon and they'll get really tired of those guys and just start beating them into submission if they aren't already aren't because they're just so annoying. Yeah, that's 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 very, very true. I Ferber and I caught some sort of stomach thing the last time we were in College Park. And I yeah. believe that we would like to never God, go back was, personally. That was a shitty um, God, that was terrible. Uh, it was anyway. for a basketball game and they lost in overtime and it was their last ACC game and I was like I'm not gonna miss coming to this place. Yeah, it was. Terrible. Yeah, you got to be careful up in uh, College Park. Yeah, food, um, water. Yes, you know everything, everything. Yeah. All right, tell me this. So in the, I think with all successful athletes, right, the the idea of going from being a professional and then to whatever's next, right, that transition. You know, some guys do it. You know, and it and it seems to work for them. Some guys struggle, you know, not having that, um, whether it's the the grind that they get used to day to day, whether it's their teammates, whether it's the roar of the crowd of all of those. How was your transition? I mean, you seem to to kind of zero in on the on the podcasting thing pretty quick. Um, how was your transition and, and, and sort of what helped you kind of let go of that former life and, and kind of focus on what was ahead? Well, it's funny, you never fully let go of it because as long as there are people making plays, doing what you did for a living, you're always going to be a little bit jealous. You're mm -hmm. always going to say, especially if, you know, like when I left, I knew I could still play a little bit. You're always going to say, like, I know I can make that play. Like, but am I willing to deal with the BS? Right. Am I willing to deal with the politics? Am I willing to deal with, you know, in an NFL building, there's a lot of politics and there's right. a lot of, as you get older, the business end of that thing really gets more prominent and um i got tired of it so in a way i was happier than i'd ever been you know my first couple months out of football happier than i ever been in my life um because football's football's a grind man i know we got paid a lot of money to do it um but i can tell you the losses don't get any easier the injuries don't don't hurt any less yeah. The disappointments don't hurt any less. The pressure doesn't feel any less crippling because you have money um, and because you, you've you had some success in the sport. So I think just 
walking away, like the ability to conquer that fear that I had for most of my career of who am I without football, like walking through that door, like in the Truman show, you seen that movie? <laughs> yeah. 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 When he walks out that door, that's how you feel. Like you really feel just like, you don't know what's on the other side. Yeah. Right? You don't know what's on the other side and it's scary. And all you hear about is, is just like this horror show of everybody that finishes playing football is going to have a terrible life. Right. You know, they're going to have traumatic brain injuries going to manifest in some terrible way. They're going to go broke. You're going to get divorced. Like you're yeah, going to miss, right? you're going to be sitting there in your letterman jacket, like watching old highlights <laughs> at 3 a.m. Like, right. No, it's nothing to be afraid of. Right. You will never have the highs that you had playing football again. You will never have those highs. And that is okay because you'll never have the lows either. I mean, life's going to throw some shitty days at you, right? Right. But the way failing at football makes you feel about yourself, <laughs> <laughs> it's a really rough thing. Yeah. And the the adrenal just fatigue of 365 for really for me i was in high school i was i treated it like a job i mean i was tr trying to be something uh for the last 20 years of my life so to walk away from that was a relief in and of itself but then after that it's learning who you are right because like football is a massive part of your life and your ego and a massive part of your day-to-day -day, your routine you don't really know who you are you know you kind of know who you are and football can shape you in a lot of positive ways but football also can obscure your view of like who you are and so mm -hmm. you also when you encounter certain things you you deal with certain feelings over that 20-year period you use football to cover that stuff up mm-hmm you know, you use football as like, kind of like, I can't think about that right now. I can't work on myself in that way. Like, I don't like this thing about myself, but I, I'm busy playing football. I have no right. energy for a new hobby, for self-help, nothing. And so getting away has been just like illuminating, man. I And, mm. and if you'd have told me that my first year out, there'd be a pandemic and I'd have to sit in my house for a year, I thought I lost my mind, you know? <laughs> um, how did it go? It's been awesome. It's been awesome. I mean, I miss it sometimes. The podcast really helps because, you know, Al Grow, he pop up again. He told me something that really stuck with me as like when I had a few years left in my career, he was like, don't try to replace football when you leave because you will never replace football. Kind of the thing I told you, you'll never get the same highs. You'll, ne you, you'll never get the same lows either. You just have to get used to living a more even killed life. Mm -hmm. And Al told me that you try to find something that replaces football in a sense of a pursuit of excellence or a pursuit of accomplishment of achievement, because that's the one thing every time he rounds us up, he reminds us really when you were out there playing football, you know, guys love football in different ways. You know, I certainly loved competing. I loved grinding. I loved challenging myself, but I didn't love the game all the time. Like just purely, I don't sit at home and, watch football all day if I don't have to, you know, I don't sit here and think about football all day, but the point Al Grow was making is everybody loves achieving something and everybody loves that feeling of when you walk off the field saying like, I did it, you know, like I accomplished right. something like right. we accomplished something. And so finding something to replace that void or to fill that void 
that's kind of podcasting for me, honestly. Like I'm social. Um, so I like talking to my buddies. Right. Uh, the grind of studying. It keeps me involved in the game just enough. Right. I'm not psychotic like Biscuit, you know, like where I want to go <laughs> coach college football. You don't, you know, you don't want to, like, you don't want to, you don't want to be coach Chris. Come on, man. No, and you're not, man. you're not Dan Orlovsky, like breaking down the all 22 <laughs> or 24 hours. Listen, man, I could do it, but it just doesn't take as long to break down all 22 on D line. Like, so <laughs> I think the big thing is the podcast allows me to have fun. Like we let our hair down big time. Like we talk about anything and most right. people probably, if they're a Virginia fan, when they pop on our podcast, they're like, man, this guy turns out, this guy cusses a lot. He, he <laughs> how dare he cuss? How dare <laughs> you? He's kind of a he's kind of a low life in a lot of ways, but um, it's a it's an authentic podcast. I just didn't want if I was going to get involved in the media, one I didn't want to be on TV because huh, I just don't want to. I like the anonymity of podcasting, right? Um, yeah. And two, I don't want to be told what to do anymore. So yeah. me doing my own podcast is pretty nice, and and I don't have to wear a suit. Yeah, you don't. Yeah, have and you don't have suit. to talk in that specific cadence that everybody on TV uses, where they're yes. like, when you, when you talk about a guy like so and so, you know, they do. And I and I went through that, Justin, where it was like, for months, I was, uh, you know, like when I say finding your voice, you're not finding your voice like who you are, because like, right, I know who I am, I know what my voice is, but you try to fit who you are to like fit an industry norm. And you'll listen to yourself sometimes. And if you didn't hate your voice enough, you're like, why are you trying to sound like a radio guy? Why are you trying to sound like a play-by-play guy? You know, like it's a podcast, you right. know? And then yeah. there, was, there was phases where I wanted to make it like a TV show and it was all overly segmented. The best thing it can be is just me and Macon. Yep, who just doing your thing. Who's one of my best friends growing up and from high school and does spotting for, uh, for y'all over there and Virginia's super fan. But he's also really fun to just kind of turn the mic on and we just go and then we have a great guest and then we just go. Yeah. I, I look, if you, you gotta be honest though, a part of, a part of biscuit doing what biscuit does is because biscuits just a different type of dude in so many yeah. different ways. Yeah. And like, um, I think that's the thing that I, I, I would like for people to sort of get an appreciation for when it comes to, to guys that I've covered or, or, or whatever, is it like, that there is a person inside you, inside Chris Long, there's a person inside Biscuit, there's a person inside that jersey of Kyle Guy or whoever, right? And I thought when Kyle came out and sort of talked about the mental health side of, of yeah. everything after UMBC, and certainly I think you've done that too a lot with you know talking about sort of the injury aspect of football and guys having to deal with you know so much more than what any fan has any idea about. You know, your yeah. day-to-day life. You know, we're not talking about like, just a few hours on a Sunday, right? This is your life. You know what I mean? That, that aspect of sort of getting inside of it, like, yeah, we can, we can be excited about like, you know, what happens on the field or on the court, but there's also, there's a humanity side. And I don't know if that's, you know, running a website with a message board for 10 years, or if that's just sort of, I think we get a lot. I think the more we're online, the more we get in the internet's awesome. I sound like a 70 year old right now. No offense to any 70 year olds that are listening, you know, count my dad (laughs) my mom is 60 year old. So like, but I sound like somebody who, but the, the, like the internet's great. Social media is great. You know, like it allows us in the world of sports to form communities and root for our teams together and that sort of thing and debate interesting topics. Well, more often than not, we're just screaming at each other, but I just feel like we lose the humanity. Sometimes Um, we do, you know, sports is 
should be high pressure. You know, you should be embarrassed when you make a mistake because that's what you signed up for. Um, when you lose, you should be miserable, right? But I do think that at times I can get frustrated with when I watch a player in the NFL who doesn't pan out or somebody who, you know, gets hurt a bunch or who's just not very good. You know, it. he kind of has to live the rest of his life with a lot of people coming up to him and the first thing they think of is that football player, not that person. Yeah, right, right. And I think what's so interesting is, you know, as humane as we are in so many ways as society, we really do put those athletes, you know, um, and their performances on the field first. And um, that that can suck. That's the one thing about pro sports, and it's not a complaint. Any guy would tell you, that's the huge trade-off. You know why guys are getting paid? Because there's not a lot of guys who can do it, one. But two, if you're D Ford and you're lined up in the neutral zone in Kansas City in the AFC Championship and Tom Brady goes down and scores and it negates a pick, you're going to live with that for the rest of your life. Yeah. You know, if you're if I played in one of the Super Bowls and I jumped off sides or if I'm a player that dropped the ball in a Super Bowl or, you know um, – or if I get drafted high because I work my ass off and don't pan out, like I play with guys that were in and out of the league in three years and they were drafted in the top five, mm-hmm. they it really didn't have anything, to, you know, might had something to do with the the personal fit for being a football player, but that doesn't make you a bad person. So I think there's a, there's a major human element that people miss out on. And also like in college football, right now we mentioned Biscuit. I got to say, man, I look back at the, you know, I go to a workout, you know, like uh, talk to Charles Snowden a little bit while he was here, talk to any number of these really model citizens that play football for Virginia. I don't think fans realize as appreciative as they are about these players, how rare young men these guys are. They're being asked to do things on the field and in the classroom that are unbelievable from a course load schedule standpoint, from a workout standpoint, from a commitment standpoint. And I just hope Virginia fans, when they see a player play on the field, appreciate the total package you have to be. And mm-hmm. the same thing goes for coaches like Marcus Higgins. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and then you throw the pandemic on top of that. You know, you're oh. talking about people losing their humanity. And you see people like on Twitter yesterday, I was like, you guys got to slow it down with like dunking on these teams for getting positives yeah. and then obviously today it kind of came back around but oh yeah we we had uh it's like what the hell is wrong we had with mark you? titus <laughs> and tate we had tate and titus on titus and tate uh that's how they prefer it yesterday and we were all dogging duke but we were like man in the back of our heads we were like we shouldn't dog him about the covid thing because that can happen to any team and and also like this year you're talking about um like last fall what these guys had to go through, they were, they were basically they prison, paid dude. to do this stuff. Yeah, exactly, and, and that, huh? I was, I was saying that they they were basically. It felt like to them, I think, that they were in prison, right? Like they couldn't go and do anything. They couldn't hang out with their friends. You know, it was basically just nothing but sit around and wait for the next day. You know what I mean? And then one, yeah, week, and they, they were happy to Tallahassee to and got a game canceled, and they were happy to do it. They went down to Tallahassee and turned right around, but they they were happy to do it. And also, what they did whether people haven't really thought this through or not is they gave us a source of entertainment that, get, that kept yeah. us sane and they that did we desperately needed yeah, <laughs> yeah seriously seriously yeah. all right chris i'm gonna get you out here on this one um you mentioned no uva fans we're talking about fandom and such i'm curious about 
you know, you came full circle, right? So you were a hometown kid, play at the hometown school. You went through your, obviously your professional career. Now you get to be a fan, right? Yeah. You're, you know, you're out there supporting the who's as much as anybody. You were front and center for the national championship game up in Minneapolis. Um, I think you, didn't you even get on the cover of, of like, weren't you so in the, the, yeah. So the weren't funniest you on thing the is, cover? yeah, me and um, somebody dropped me off of sports illustrated a couple of weeks after the game. And uh, they said, man, you, you really got to have one of these one. And I was like, man, I know, get me like 10 of them. They were like, no, you really need to have five. That'd be <laughs> you had no <laughs> idea. Huh? And, and it was me, Tom Sandy and Heath yeah. Miller, um, up there and a, a group of us went up including john phillips and you know including macon who was working yeah, for the right. for the team and it was just an all-time classic night man to to be there listen we've been there for the good nights yep but we've also been there for the bad nights and i <laughs> yeah. think that's the difference i don't want to be the guy that just shows up you know national championship or or you know when we regained the commonwealth cup two years ago those are highlights, but I can tell you 50 times where I was on the road in the NFL on a Saturday and they didn't have the damn game on TV and I had to get on some weird site or go to some <laughs> weird sports bar and sit there alone, you know, um, and watch like Virginia, Maryland and my buddy Nate Collins get a pick six in the rain. Yeah. Like I have all these memories of, of games where we fell short too or when nobody was watching and so – it feels good to be a Virginia fan right now because things are, you know, we things are turning around. You uh, you mentioned, um, you know, being there for the for the good and the bad. Um, I want to know what that moment was like for you to watch them beat Tech. I mean, <sighs> maybe you know, g given you know, sort of like the the uh, not everybody. Uh, you yeah. know, this is a shock to UVA fans. Not everybody hates Virginia Tech at the same level that all UVA fans do. But mm -hmm. I think pretty much every UVA fan has some level of hate for Virginia Tech somewhere in there. What was it like for you to watch those kids to to do that? What was it like for you? Well, number one, uh, I never beat Tech, obviously. So I was in the middle of that fifteen year period. In fact, I think our freshman year was the first of the uh, the 15 or so years that they held the cup. So the release, the relief of the streak is over was monumental because, like I said, of all the – like I can take a loss in the NFL like because I busted my ass. I had full control over my circumstance. Um and at the end of the day, you got to have a short memory. I cannot take a, a Virginia football loss. I cannot take a Virginia basketball loss. <laughs> I sat in various places for the better part of those 10, 11 years I was in the NFL. And every year, this could be the year. This could be the year. This could be the year. We just could not get over the hump. And I do think there was a major mental aspect to it. So, you know, a guy like Bryce Perkins, lat, you know, not two years ago, He's going to go down as one of the most productive players in Virginia history. And so I put him up there as one of the best players in Virginia history, even in a small sample size. But you could make a case for being one of the most important um, Virginia athletes of all time. Absolutely. If you take into account what he did and if you take into account that 15 year period, it was like an elephant on mm -hmm. everybody's back. And I know there were more guys, shout out to like Mandy Alonzo making that play on the goal line um, and that sort of thing. But Bryce Perkins put that team on his back all year long and was tough. He was the consummate Virginia football player. 
And so to be there in person, I'll never forget it. It felt like we won because <laughs> Lord knows that's the closest <laughs> I'll ever get to beating Tech. Yeah. Um, the thing is, you only get one day a year to fix it, right? Like, yeah, that's right. You know, it's like you get one chance. So you don't get like you, you have to wait. So how do you go about days. fixating on it? You know, yeah. like because Bronco does the thing with the clock. You know, I'm sure some coaches say it's just another game, but they've leaned fully into it. And I don't mind that either. But then, you know, you got to beat Tech. Yeah, yeah, I think done. that was a thing too. Is like when they started talking about it more, it's like, okay, well, now you have to back it up. You absolutely do. You're just going to get made fun of if you don't. You absolutely but, do. And they need to, they over. need to be more. They need to show up next year because you know last year I, I just I felt like you know that when you when you get beat by tech you get beat by tech but when you get beat by tech and and it didn't have to be that ugly and right. you yeah. were you were competitive and you show up like that like they got to be better next year and UVA yeah. had the better team. Like they were just, yeah. and they just didn't play on the day, you know, but yeah. tech played. And that's the one thing I always respect about tech is tech plays. And so I know some people don't want to hear, you know, like tech compliments ever, ever at all. Like Macon, if I compliment tech, he wants to vomit. <laughs> I'm like, listen, did you lose to Virginia tech four years in a row? Because I did. And I'm just telling you, we have to elevate our level um, mm-hmm. to just, to just lock this state up because as you can see, they don't go away. I mean, we've noticed it just watching them warm up. Like yep. Brad, Brad, Brad has said it. You're like, yeah, these guys are not going to just, just like, It's just roll different. Over. <laughs> the, the way that they handle it on the field, you can see it. You can see it in the, how, the urgency, the, just in the way that their 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 energy is like on pregame. You can see it. For well, we got to be years, that way. We, yeah, we have to ha- we have to hate them as much as they resent us. Yep. You Absolutely. know, um, and that's the players, right? I mean, me, the fan, I have the luxury of saying I don't hate these guys so much. I just I just don't like them. I'm not going to waste energy hating them. But like when you play on that field, you have to. And and yeah. and they got to they got to bring energy next year when they play them. All right, I said last question I lied. I want to talk to you a little bit about Waterboys. Um, yeah. I don't I think it's really cool just as somebody who covers UVA and who has grown up in Virginia to see so many different, you know, places where UVA people are involved, right? Um, mm-hmm. and that, it, you know, I, I'm just, I'm curious to you, as you look at where water boys is now, did you ever dream that it could be, you know, you guys just, you know, obviously spreading out into different, um, arenas, different sports and stuff. Yeah. Did you ever have an idea that it could do what it's already done at this point? Listen, it was just like, um, when we started it about five, seven years ago or whenever the plant, the seed was planted, um, you know, we hoped to do 32 large solar powered wells to signify 32 teams in the NFL. Uh The fact that we are nearing a hundred wells, um, in the ground at this point and half a million people serve, like it's just beyond my wildest dreams. But the fact that we have, you know, outkicked our coverage, uh, certainly doesn't make me complacent i want to push forward and do more and that's why you know like last year a year or two ago uh we changed our goal to a million people serve so we're going on a people serve model and we're not just working in east africa a lot of people see our graphics and see what we do um there and the need is the most dire there it's the it's the you know of all the places we work it is um we are also working domestically. We've done projects in Virginia at this point. We, you know, we just did a project in Texas. We're working in rural America. Water is an issue here in our country. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're also working on Navajo Nation. 
where, you know, if you're an indigenous person in this country, you have 17 times the chance of encountering an issue with clean water um, than we do. And if you're a person of color, two and a half times that chance. So mm. no matter where you look, water is an issue. And the reason I am drawn to it as a cause is the most efficient way to change the world. You know where your, your money's going. You know how many people are going to be helped by that by that donation. You know that, you know, um, one well is going to cost $50,000, but it's going to serve a generation of up to 7,500 people with the gift of clean water. And so life is hard enough when you're hydrated. Right. <laughs> I joke a lot about hydration, yeah, you, <laughs> I, you know, because honestly, when I got out of the league, I stopped, I wasn't exercising much. So I wasn't drinking as much water and I had this brain fog all the time. But when you go into schools and kids don't have a water fountain, when yeah. you go to East Africa and you go to a school in Tanzania and a primary school, and you got to go down a, a hundred yard hill down into this uh, creek that runs through an urban area. It's got gasoline film. It's got trash in it. And kids are yeah. thoughtlessly just scooping up the water to go drink it at school yeah. um so it might not be as dramatic here as it is there but we have our issues here and so we're trying to work here and there it's really cool to see all the uva guys involved in this too you know not people in you know professional leagues so that's yeah that's really no great. i mean it was great crossing over into basketball you know we started hoops 2-0 we were able to recruit malcolm um to kind of head that up for a while and so Malk's had a guy like Joe Harris involved. Uh, we had Kyle Guy involved. Uh, obviously, it was exciting to get a Kyle Guy because that meant we were getting some younger players too. Yeah. Malk's kind of moved on to start his own thing, um, and I'm excited for him in that right. And uh, I just think, you know, like in the water space, we could use more athletes involved. And so what we've tried to do is just build like kind of an alliance um, where we have basketball players, we have mixed martial artists, we have baseball players. Um, and we also launched Water for Her recently, which is huge. International Women's Day was the other day. Women and girls bear the brunt of this uh, of this hardship, you know, when it comes to gathering clean water all around the world. Um, in Sub-Saharan Africa, you know, you're talking about billions of, of hours in a year combined that women are wasting mm. gathering water. And we're talking about four to six mile treks every day. And we're talking about unclean water that you have to give to your children that can kill them. And so women not being in school, women not being in their communities, that's a terrible, terrible resource to waste. Um, you know, women in, in, in around the world are such drivers for their communities. And um, so we launched Water for Her the other day and we've raised a bunch of money already. So you can check that out at waterforher.org. Good deal. Well, Chris, I've already kept you like a good half an hour past what I uh Oh, you're good, man. So I appreciate you. Was uh, this 400th? You're 400, man. So I had, I had figured I'd stay a while. So <laughs> we uh, when you get to when you get to episode 400 of your show, you feel free to call me and I'll come. Yep. Okay. Yep. And I'll, I'll give it back to you. But Chris Long, as if as if anybody out there needs uh, like like I said before, anybody uh, listening to this show needs uh, needs to know who you are. Thank you very much for your time, sir. It was great to catch up with you. Thank you, guys. Wahoo! Wah.